0: Hey, what's up? This is Kristen Carter, and you're listening to a new bi-weekly series on the I Have ADHD podcast called, Maybe I'm Not the Problem. This is a different type of podcast where I have deep conversations with therapists, psychologists, and trauma-informed coaches about how our pasts, our upbringing, our parents, our teachers, our traumas, our neurodivergencies, all of that have impacted us and how maybe, just maybe, we are not the problem. Now this is not ADHD specific content, so if that's what you're looking for, just click on one of the over 200 episodes of the I Have ADHD podcast and enjoy. You can expect this bi-weekly series of maybe I'm not the problem to be a casual, long form and really vulnerable conversation with someone that I deeply respect. For detailed information about today's guest, check out the episode show notes for their bio and links. And now... Let's get started. Welcome, Mina. So glad that you're here with me. I just really appreciate the time, the energy, the effort. I can't wait to do a deep dive. Tell me a little bit about who you are. Okay, I am
1: a licensed social worker and a mental health educator. Mm -hmm. I studied social work at NYU. I received my master's in social work from there. I studied the clinical track. So right after graduate school, I worked as a therapist for about nine years. And then in 2020 i actually pivoted um to doing more of the educating so now i have my own mental consulting practice where i work with organizations to help them develop psychological safety and become mental health inclusive so that is a big bulk of the work that i do um, outside of that i'm also a writer i have my first book debuting this summer um Owning our struggles, a path to healing and finding community in a broken world, mm-hmm. and the core concept of the book is teaching people how to heal from trauma through collective care and community mm-hmm. care. Um, so
0: that pretty much is my background. That's amazing. I am so interested in all of it. I would love to hear what does it mean to develop psychological safety within a company. Like, mm-hmm. what does that what does that mean? So basically that means making space
1: in an organization to have safe conversations where people are not belittled, where people aren't judged, where people Mm -hmm. aren't shamed for speaking up and asking questions. A psychologically safe environment is one where people listen. It's an environment that cultivates a space of belonging It's an environment that really focuses on how to build connection. um, And most importantly as well, combating institutional trauma. Um, So Mm -hmm. it's really a space where when ruptures happen, we're doing the work of repairing through being a psychologically safe environment where we're listening to your needs taking ownership for how we may have failed you within our organization and making an actionable plan of what we're going to do to move forward. And that really plays a role in, you know, managing and nurturing someone's mental health as
0: well. I mean, that just sounds so delicious. Mm -hmm. I wonder, is it, do you find that organizations that are interested in that kind of work Like, are the psychologically unsafe organizations actually interested and like open and willing? Is it like almost preaching to the choir? Like the people who are willing and open are the ones that you're like, well, you're already doing a pretty good job, but like, we can give you pointers. Do you know what I mean? Like, are there toxic environments that are like, Hey, we'd like some help with this.
1: Well, the thing is most people don't recognize when they're toxic and it applies to organizations. You know, I always tell people, people run organizations and often in our personal lives, if we don't even realize our toxic tendencies, it's going to be hard to see when you micromanage at work. It's Mm -hmm. going to be hard to see when you be little people and talk down to them at work, because that's who you are in your everyday life. It's not just who you are when you show up to work, okay. you know? So I do find that some organizations may not realize they have toxic tendencies sometimes until they start working with me mm-hmm. and they realize, well, you know what, you know, we may have not, understood what psychological safety means until we started working with Nina. Yeah. We never understood what institutional betrayal was until we started working with Nina. We never really knew how to practice allyship and cultivate a space of mm. inclusivity until we actually started working with you and taking your training and really diving into the concepts that you share. And that helps us realize we thought we were doing it right, but yeah. we still have more to learn. And I think that's a part of the process. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you do think you're doing it right, or sometimes you do know you're doing it wrong and you're finding ways and you're finding support to do better. Mm-hmm. Um, so I do find that I have had the luxury and the privilege of being able to work with some really great organizations who have been able to be vulnerable enough to say we don't know what we're doing and Mm -hmm. some organizations who have been able to say we've done trainings in the past but we know we need more Mm -hmm. and that is how we grow and that is what workplace safety is.
0: I want to be a part of organizations that prioritize that way of being for sure. So I w- I'm just interested in your story. How did you get into this work? You're an author. You're a speaker. You're um, a mental health professional, like your therapist. How how did all of this come to be for you? Like, what was the what was the reason that you're like, yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna go to school for social work? Um, that reason I
1: would say is more personal. Mm. Uh, growing up, I struggled with depression and anxiety for mm-hmm. a really long time. I didn't know because I was a child when I was experiencing it. Mm-hmm. However, when I became a teenager, I realized some things not right because yeah. I was in a very, very dark place. Um, I was in so much of a dark place that I was having suicidal thoughts and mm-hmm. I began to cut as a way to cope. So I knew that my mental health was suffering and it was being impacted by the different things happening within my environment. Mm-hmm. It wasn't until I started to see a therapist in my early 20s that I started to understand where my trauma came from. Being bullied as a kid, also dealing with sibling abuse and rivalry in my home did mm-hmm. play a big factor in me dealing with depression and anxiety as well. Um, and so when I was a teen, I think I mean, I wanted to do a lot of things, but I always wanted to figure out what was wrong with me.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: And being on that journey of trying to figure out what was wrong with me really drew me to the mental health field. And it made me curious about my behavior. It made me curious about why was I feeling suicidal? Mm
0: -hmm. You know,
1: it was that tug of war where I wanted to survive, I wanted to live, but deep down, I just wanted to disappear. Um, And I really was, I was always a curious child. So it's no surprise that even when it came to my mental health and my own suffering, I was deeply curious to know why is it also just me? I would have conversations with my friends who would say, I don't relate, I don't understand. But I'm going to tell you something that's often shocking to people. I was okay with that. Wow. I, I was okay with that. And the reason why is because with my personality and just what I was dealing with, I needed to know what was on the other side of my depression. So if everyone around me could relate. Yeah. And if everyone around me was depressed, I would have no idea what hope looks like. Yeah. So I am actually someone who, you know, we often say the concept of you are not alone. Mm -hmm. For me, it sounds counterintuitive, but I was happy that I was alone. It made me thrive because it gave me something to work toward because it made me realize if I'm alone in this and there's people around me who Mm -hmm. are experiencing the things I want, then that means there's a way out of this. And you're showing me that I can have a happy life. You're showing me that I can have a life where I'm thriving. If I am feeling depressed and you're not, you're letting me know there's a way to get to where you are. Mm. And that propelled me to be more curious about, well, then what's wrong with me? Why am Mm. I feeling this way? And that is when I decided that I wanted to... um, pursue the mental health field. Mm -hmm. So for undergrad at that time, I was still kind of trying to figure out like what I really, really want to do. So I studied business management and I took all of my elective classes and things like sociology, psych 101, things like that. And my sociologist professor was a social worker. Mm -hmm. And when she would come to class and share her stories and just talk about her work, I said, I'm going to get my master's in social work. This is it. This Mm. is what I'm called to do. And then I made the choice to pursue social work. So as I shared, my story is not fully linear, but it definitely comes from my own struggle with mental health. But it also comes from my curiosity around why am I like this? And what will it take for me to get to the other side? Mm. And what are the tools that I need to live the life that I know I deserve to have because I knew the suffering I was feeling wasn't my end goal. And which which is why the suicidal thoughts were always tugging at me. And it never felt like this is something I really wanted to do. It was just Mm -hmm. thoughts that were happening, but deep down inside, I knew I wanted to live. Mm -hmm. So if I knew I wanted to live, I just, I knew that I had to pursue certain things in life that would get me to where I needed to get to.
0: Mm. Um, And that's pretty much my backstory. Wow. That's so powerful. I'm really curious. When did you start therapy? Like specifically, were you in college already or was this like post-grad, like what was happening? What was like that, that switch that you were like, okay, I'm, I'm going to pursue therapy. So I actually started
1: therapy the same month that I started graduate school. Wow. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> Yes, yeah, so here I am, social work program, wow. and on, and outside of class, I'm in the therapist's office. Yeah. The switch that made me realize I needed to start therapy was one when I got my acceptance letter into NYU. And I realized the path that I wanted to get on. I realized to myself, too, I've never been to therapy. Yeah. And I'm about to get into a field where I'm going to be working with clients as a therapist. Yeah. I'm going to have to understand what therapy is like and how to really work with clients and build a therapeutic relationship. So a part of me felt that the best way to really understand that was to pursue it. Sure. The other thing that was happening, however, so I started grad school when I was 22 years old. Mm -hmm. Um, At that time in my life, I was also going through a lot with my mental health once again. Mm -hmm. Um, My father had passed away when I was 19. So, as I shared, thank you. As I shared in my story earlier, already growing up dealing with depression and anxiety, um a big part of my depression as a teenager came from caretaking for my father. Yeah. Then he passes away when I'm nineteen. And when I was nineteen, I was already an undergrad because I went straight in. I graduated in June, um and then I started college in July when I was 18. So by 19, I was already um, one year into my college program and I was just stressed out. Yeah, I found myself going back to that dark place. I found myself actually having urges to cut again. Mm-hmm. I found myself just struggling with what it meant to move forward. And to be totally transparent, I was angry. And my rage was manifesting in ways that I can be honest and say I'm not proud of.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: I was acting out as a very hurt, dysregulated and emotionally immature person. I was verbally violent toward people.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: I was aggressive at times. Um, I was someone that I never used ever been in my life and the people around me who great like thankfully I had such an amazing support system because my friends started to call me out and they started to say your attitude what happened yeah your anger where is this coming from yeah no one can say anything to you without you lashing out Mm. you're not listening And I really had to digest that. Mm -hmm. And I'm also grateful that because these were safe, trusted people in my life, I never had a reaction of, oh my gosh, like y'all just bothering me or just you're complaining. I heard, I had the capacity to be in my hurt and still hear how -hmm. people perceived me and how I impacted other people. Wow. And that was around age 19, 20. And mm-hmm. then early, when I was like I said, early within a year, 21 is when I applied to grad school. And early spring of 20, when I turned 22, is when I got my acceptance letter. And I was just like, there's no way I can embark on this journey and be the person that I am right now. Cause mm-hmm. I'm angry and I'm hurt and mm-hmm. I'm mad. And sometimes I'm miserable. And I just, I have so much happening that I need a safe outlet to share. And so that is when I was lucky enough to find a therapist and it worked out that the timing literally was, I started grad school and then the week later I started therapy. Wow.
0: Yeah. Wow. I so appreciate you sharing all of that because I think that, um, there would be maybe an assumption that you would have started therapy earlier, but to to hear you say that it was you allowing other people to speak into your life and you being able to be in pain and receptive at the same time, that's incredible. I think that most of the time when we're in pain, we're so closed off to what other people are saying and we're so consumed with everything that's going on in our lives. But for you to have the capacity to, to hear people, that's like, where'd that come from? That's amazing. Yeah.
1: I think that comes from, this is why I'm passionate about community care. Mm. Um, Cool. I, I knew the people in my community loved me. Mm. No matter how angry I was, there was never a time where my anger blindsided me from seeing how people wanted to nurture me. And I was very intentional about allowing myself to be open to that. Wow. Um, And these are people who have never failed me. These are people who I had trusted relationships with. (laughs) These were people who were a part of my network, my circle of intimacy. Yeah. And so even when I had a moment where I felt, I don't want to hear what they're saying. Yeah. Oh, here they go. They're complaining again. Right. In my quiet hour, in my moments of solitude, I had to play those thoughts back. And mm-hmm. I had to say, really, Mina? Mm-hmm. You really think what you did did not impact someone else? You really think people are just making statements? You really think you and your actions aren't leaving an impact around the people who love you?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And I guess because I grew up in a big family, I always had to be mindful of feelings. And that was something that played a big role in me being able to be receptive because I do believe that is what community care is. Community care is understanding that despite what you go through and despite the trauma you have faced, you still leave an impact. Mm. And you have to be willing to say, despite how dysregulated I am, despite how hurt I am, how am I impacting my neighbor? Wow. How am I impacting the person that I love? And what will it take for me to ensure that I repair the ruptures that I've caused in my life? And that might mean I need to work on healing my trauma. Because mm-hmm. what happened to me is no one, it's not my fault. It's not, and it's, but it's also not their fault. So it's not fair for me to lash out on people who are trying to pour into me, who are trying to nourish me and trying to nurture me, for me to treat them as if they don't matter. Mm. For me to treat them as if I don't owe them anything, because I owe people generosity. I owe people kindness. I owe people love. And I owe people respect. There is never going to be a time where I believe I don't owe someone respect and care. Hmm. And I need to acknowledge how my behaviors impact other people. And I I think my self-awareness around that comes from, again, growing up in a big family. Therefore, I've been on a receiving end of harm. And I've had to say, you hurt me. Now, what are you going to do? How Hmm. are we going to repair this? But that Hmm. also trickles out to friends. That trickles out to relationships. That trickles out to my network. So as a result of me having people and being receptive to the people in my life, that played a big role
0: in my healing. That's so beautiful. that's so beautiful. Okay, take me to your in grad school and you're in therapy. I can't imagine being immersed in a social work program because that's intense. I, I I would imagine that's very intense. You're learning so much about the human brain, about families, about like society, the impact of trauma. I mean, that's like, that's intense on its own. And then you're unpacking your own, like you're unpacking your own story in therapy. So you're 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 getting both sides, right? You're unpacking other people's stories in your in your grad school training and then you're unpacking your own story in therapy. What was that like? I also
1: will add internship, so I'm oh unpacking gosh. I'm unpacking my story. I'm learning about human behavior and I'm also in internship listening to other people in their stories as wow. well.
0: Wow, <laughs> That's a lot of stories. That's a, <laughs> lot, that's a lot of stories. Wow. Yeah.
1: Um, You know, I will say overall, it was an amazing experience. Mm-hmm. Of course, there were moments where it was painful, me sharing my story um, and really getting into the root, getting to the root of why Why was I behaving that way? Why was I so angry? What -hmm. is the hurt that I'm carrying that I'm not acknowledging? And then also learning about human behavior at the time was really eye-opening, you know, being able to learn about how trauma impacts the brain, how childhood trauma leaves a long lasting impact up to 30 years, how trauma from childhood rewires the brain, Um, How trauma causes dysregulation to the body, learning about the nervous system, the parasympathetic nervous system, the sympathetic nervous system, and recognizing when I'm in a constant state of survival mode, why I I learned why my initial reaction is always to get into fight mode. That was my trauma response. Everything Um, was a fight. Everything was an argument. Everything was, you want to play with me? All right, I'm going to show you. (laughs) Like I'm being real. I'm being totally totally real. Like I'm letting people know like that was me. My trauma response was fight. Yeah. Um, and I think it was just so interesting because I was able to connect the dots. Like I would be able to go to school and learn about these concepts Mm -hmm. and then come to therapy. And I it was always so interesting because I would come to the therapeutic relationship and I would say, okay. So I want to talk about this, but I think I figured it out already. Let me just tell you, though, what happened. And I'm going to tell you what I think was going on for me. And she would just sit there literally for like the whole 45 minute session and I would therapy myself. I love it. Because I was gaining so much self-awareness that I was like, remember that story I told you about how I felt when this happened? Mm. Well, I actually realized it was probably because I was triggered from X, Y, Z. And this was while I felt, and I felt disrespected and I felt this, and so I reacted, but that probably Mm -hmm. wasn't the proper way to respond to the situation. So an alternative would be, and I found that maybe when I do deep breaths, that helps me cope. And she would just be like- I'm so she happy. She like I this. mean I just
0: get to sit here,
1: she's just right? drinking her coffee, <laughs> just just chilling, laid back. And it was just like it was just I think the best word to say it was I was in awe. Mm-hmm. And it was so inspiring and eye-opening mm-hmm. because I carried so much my whole life. Mm-hmm. And um I think it was just also the perfect timing, you know, for me to be able to experience laying down my burdens and laying down my pain and really releasing myself and stepping into vulnerability mm-hmm. while simultaneously seeing what that also looks like in a therapeutic relationship where I am the person now leading the discussion, because yeah. this is where the internship part comes in. Right. So by being able to learn about human behavior, learn about trauma, learn about systems, learn about family, bring that into my own therapeutic relationship. Those things helped me and shaped me to know how to show up as a therapist. Because I think for me with my story, it wasn't just about going to grad school. It was also about unpacking my history. Yep. You know, and I think by being able to unpack my history and sort through all of my mess and figure out the areas where I felt broken and repair myself and put myself back together Mm -hmm. and also think about the different resources and coping strategies that helped me with my own repair while, again, learning evidence-based modalities and practices that really helped to inform my work In a way that I think is very beautiful and sacred. And I, I was in therapy for the whole two years that I was in grad school. So it's not like I stopped in the middle. Like I literally, the whole two years I did grad school, I did therapy the whole two years. Love it. So it was just this beautiful journey because after my my first internship was at a school, then my second internship was at a substance abuse clinic. So also being able to shift those environments and show up in a completely different atmosphere, yeah. but also have my tools and my knowledge. I think though that experience was just necessary and it was
0: yeah yeah and now a word from our sponsor hey kristen here i'm the host of this podcast an adhd expert and a certified life coach who's helped hundreds of adults with adhd understand their unique brains and make real changes in their lives if you're not sure what a life coach is let me tell you A life coach is someone who helps you achieve your goals like a personal trainer for your life. A life coach is a guide who holds your hand along the way as you take baby step after baby step to accomplish the things that you want to accomplish. A good life coach is a trained expert who knows how to look at situations, all situations with non-judgmental neutrality and offer you solutions that you've probably never even considered before. If you're being treated for your ADHD, and maybe even you've done some work in therapy, and you want to add to your scaffolding of support, you've got to join my group coaching program, Focused. Focused is where functional adults with ADHD surround each other with encouragement and support. And I lead the way with innovative and creative solutions to help you fully accept yourself, understand your ADHD and create the life that you've always wanted to create, even with ADHD. Go to IHaveADHD.com slash focused to join. And I hope to see you in our community today. So I have been in therapy for two and a half years and unpacking all of the things. And I feel like it's been a reckoning. It's been a reckoning. And it's really informed my coaching. So I'm a coach, I coach adults with ADHD and I get the question a lot, what's the difference between coaching and therapy? There's no perfect answer to that. Um, But one of the things that I like to say is coaching helps you see where you are the problem and like change it, move forward. Therapy, at least for me, helps me to see where I'm not the problem. Mm -hmm someone else, where there, where there was harm, where there was trauma, where there, where my story impacted me. And I know that's oversimplifying it, but for me, it resonates so much and is a big reason of why I'm starting this podcast called maybe I'm not the problem because, um, as somebody with ADHD who grew up in a narcissistic family system, I always thought I was the problem. I mean, and for, for almost four decades, I was like, I am the problem here. And every, every relationship that I show up on every, um, like any conflict, I know that it's my fault and therapy helped me to discover, wait a second, I'm actually not always the problem and being able to see clearly with very clear eyes, um, other people and how they've impacted me has been just the biggest, um, it's been the biggest, I can't, I don't even have words. It's so huge for me. And when I say it's been a reckoning, that's not even a big enough statement. And so I'm, I'm curious for you, was your therapeutic process similar in that you also discovered maybe I'm not the problem here. Maybe there are things around me that have harmed me. I just, I wonder if if you relate to that at all.
1: Yeah, definitely. I definitely think being in therapy helped me to explore why I was the way that I was. Hmm. What are certain things that I may have experienced that impacted me, um, left a mark on me and maybe the wounds that I was carrying yes. that were still open- And that therapeutic relationship was really the stitches that I need to heal and bring myself to this full space of healing. Mm -hmm. And I think for me, I really began to realize how, I'll talk about my fight activation, my nervous system dysregulation. I was bullied as a child. I was Mm -hmm. bullied in my home and I was also bullied at school. And I know bullying is something that happens to many people, right? But I think it's often something that is overlooked as kids just doing horseplay, as all, don't be too sensitive. And we don't really realize how bullying can be the first, our first, um, our first encounter with verbal abuse.
0: Yeah.
1: And so- I grew up feeling very sensitive to the bullying that I I experienced, but it makes sense because it's verbally traumatic, right? It's a form of trauma. And then to be out in school and be bullied, but then come home to an environment that is supposed to be safe. yeah, It's supposed to be a sacred space that is supposed to be um, a a place of refuge away from the outside world where you feel like you're being harmed to now experience bullying and verbal assaults and consistently be um, the victim of verbal harm Mm. that in many ways almost led to physical harm, that was hard for me. Yeah, And I don't know what the switch was, but I remember by the time I reached middle school, it's so funny because I write about this story in my book. Um, by the time I reached middle school, I remember having this encounter with a teacher who told me to shut up.
0: Yeah. Oh my goodness. Right. Yes. Yes. And I'm, I'm so we'll right just now. add like <laughs> bullying from teachers in right. there as well. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And
1: I literally write about this story because, and I still feel it in my body where, hmm the moment that teacher told me to shut up the way I exploded I lashed out wow um I lashed out in ways that even when I think back I can't believe my young I don't know how old was I, I was sixth grade so maybe 11 at oh the time. my gosh you were little I was I was little. little I was little but I had a mouth, and I just I just went off on her., mm-hmm. I'll, just, I'll just use my AAV right now, and I just say, I went off on her. and i i I even share how, like, um, I went off on her so bad she started crying and ran out the classroom.. Mm. And I think what ended up, while I was in therapy, what helped me realize was, as a result of being bullied. The way my body internalized it was in order to protect, because we all find different defenses and mechanisms to self-protect. Some of us might shut down. Some of us might internalize the things that we hear. Um, And so the bullying might make us become very quiet. It might make us become very shy, which is what I used to be. And I think the more I experienced bullying, the more my self-protection said, I'm going to have to match these people's, their energy yeah. to let them know I am not to be messed with because yeah. I'm tired. My nervous system was tired. Yeah. My nervous system was shut down so much that I said, if someone pushes this button, panic mode is going to go up. It's kind of like, you know, when you pull the emergency alarm and it's just like blaring, blaring, yeah. blaring. That is where my my nervous system was just so shot that I mm-hmm. said, if someone says one more thing to me, I'm going to lose my mind. Yeah, That is what happened.
0: Mm-hmm. That
1: is what happened. So in many ways though, I began to lash out. And while I was in therapy, however, This is the part where I will say is a slightly different experience for me in regards to like the coaching and therapeutic relationship. Mm. A part of me recognized the area where I wasn't the problem. So this is where my trauma started.
0: Sure. Right. We
1: all have P when you're dealing with trauma and you have PTSD. These are the symptoms that exist because of the trauma that took place. The trauma is not your fault. You begin to realize that the trauma came from being bullied, the trauma came from having sibling abuse. The trauma came from all of these external things. Yeah. Now you have to pay attention to how that trauma shaped you. Mm -hmm. And what I started to learn was that trauma shaped me to the point where my nervous system did not know how to self-regulate and cope. All my nervous system knew how to do was lash out. Yeah, But lashing out was becoming problematic. Yes. Yeah. So Yeah. Yeah. yeah, you know? And so for me, it was an experience of being able to feel validated, feel heard and feel seen To be able to have a conversation where I can share my hurt and pain and be told like, that was not okay. Or like, even when I just shared with you right now, my teacher told me to shut up. That type of reaction alone, it's like, it's validating to know, okay, so I'm not crazy. Right. Right, I'm not crazy to feel hurt by this. To feel offended by this, like other people feel like that is also inappropriate. And that helps me to feel cared for. It helps me to Mm -hmm. feel nourished, And it helps me to understand um, the different systems at play when you're dealing with outside stimuli Mm -hmm. and you're dealing with other people because we can't control people, right? And so when you're dealing with people who are causing you harm, you start to recognize how that PTSD comes up. But the other part of therapy that I worked on was recognizing that as a result of having PTSD, I was now beginning to hurt others.
0: Yeah. And that's a problem.
1: And that's a problem.
0: Yeah. That is a problem. Yeah, for sure. And I think
1: for me, and it's it's something that I share in my book as well. Mm -hmm. um, I have a bunch of client stories where I share that concept of how sometimes when we're dealing with PTSD, that in many ways, the trauma that happened is not our fault, right? But when you are shaped by that trauma, moving through life as if we're not hurting people, can be a bit careless yeah and that's not an act of community care Mm
0: -hmm.
1: and because I was hurting people I loved that helped me to recognize I need to do some repairing on the inside Mm
0: -hmm. but
1: I also was able to feel validated enough to say, I'm going to do this repairing. And now I also feel empowered because I know that I got this way because of my experiences. And now I need to start drawing some boundaries because every time I'm around you, I get so dysregulated. Mm -hmm. I get out of character that this is showing me. I cannot have a conversation with you. I cannot be in relationship with you. And I'm realizing that you are the person who caused this because you caused the ruptures in this relationship, but because I have agency over myself and my actions, I have to now make a choice on how I am going to move forward in life so that I am protecting my peace, protecting my well-being, but also still showing up as a member of my community who is playing a role in collective care versus mm. because I don't want to be the person who harmed me. I don't want to turn into them. Right. So being mindful of that in that therapeutic relationship was very rewarding for me because I think for so long, you know, as you shared, I felt very invalidated. I felt like I was going crazy. I felt like I was gaslighting myself. Like, why couldn't you just deal with being bullied? You were a kid. Why couldn't you just brush that off? Why'd you let it impact you so badly? And I started to realize verbal abuse. I started to learn Mm -hmm. about sibling abuse. I started to learn about all of these different concepts that helped me realize this is what shapes the human experience. And your nervous system is not designed to deal with those things. So your body is just going in survival mode Mm -hmm. every time you encounter someone. Mm -hmm. Um, So you want to do the work of really reflecting on what kind of relationships do you want to hold in the midst of you learning about your history. And I think that really helped me a lot.
0: I'm so grateful to you for sharing your story because it is just it's so tender and it's just so it's just so real. I I am curious now because I have also in a similar way, you know, uncovering how much I lived in survival mode and then trying to structure my life in a way that allows me to thrive and allows me to show up for the people um especially not just the people I love because I, I've had to release some people from my life that I actually really love. I've had to release them with love so that I can show up for the people that are dependent on me. I have three kids. I've got a large client base. I was unable to show up for the people in my life. Um, my husband, my kids, my clients, my close circle of intimacy friends because of these relationships. And I'm curious what that process was like for you recognizing I'm going to have to set some really maybe strict boundaries, or I'm going to have to release this person from my life, especially at such a young age. I mean, I'm, I'm 42. I was 20 years older than you when you were kind of making these discoveries. Um, What was that like for you to begin implementing those boundaries? Um,
1: You know, for me, it was actually slightly different. Mm. It was, I wouldn't say it was implementing boundaries. Mm. It was me actually learning to soften them. Oh, i always had boundaries. My boundaries, however, were aggressive. Okay, say more, say more. This is so good. My boundaries were rigid
0: my walls. boundaries
1: were walls.
0: Yeah. I'm picturing yeah. like a brick wall. Like brick this, wall. Yeah. yeah. That's a yeah.
1: perfect way to envision it. It was, it was, it just came out in a way where, like I said, I, I was very verbally ag- aggressive sure. at mm-hmm. times, mm-hmm. right? I found myself in a position where with people that I loved, it was like an instant, well, I don't want to talk to you. Mm-hmm. And but in a way that wasn't caring, in a way that was ang- still filled with hate, sure. still filled with anger and not a space to sit in the grayness of mm-hmm. certain relationships. Yeah. So for me, um, to be fully transparent, it became difficult for me to to navigate how to soften my boundaries because as I shared, um, a big person who played a role in my harm was a sibling. Yeah. Now this sibling had children,
0: mm.
1: and I wanted a relationship with them. Mm. I did not want to cut this person so far out of my life that the consequence would be not having a relationship yeah. with their kids, yeah. who I love, mm. who should not have to deal with the consequences of their parent. Yeah. So that forced me to have to Yeah. And I think this is a part of boundaries that most people don't talk about. Yep. You know, I think we live in a world where it's like, say what you gotta say. If it's no, it's no. Right. And there's a lot of difficulties. Like, like you even just said, you had to cut people out that you love. Mm. There's a lot of grief that comes with that. And for me, it was this person is harmful but there is something at stake that I'm not willing to let go of. And now those are the kids. So if I want a relationship with the children, what does it look like for me to soften my boundaries, but still stay firm, mm. not passive, not to get rid of them, but what does it look like for me to be firm in my know, be firm in how we communicate so that there can be peace? Yeah. So that there can be an arrangement where I am not in fight mode. Yes, right? I feel secure, I feel regulated, I feel comfortable, and I can say what I need to say with you to you without being aggressive, right. without being that combative. Because right. that's my that's Activated how did all the yeah. time. Right. And that's how I used to deliver my boundaries. Yeah. My boundaries yeah. Yeah. used to be that, oh yeah, you you have, <laughs> yeah, like it used to be this big thing. That's why I'm like, I okay. always had it.
0: As someone who's, um whose trauma response is freeze fawn, I'm so jealous. Is that <laughs> weird to be jealous of someone else's trauma response? <laughs> Like from a freeze bond person, that sounds incredible. Like being able to say the things, like the things that go on in my head, but I'm just like frozen. And then I'm complimenting someone that's being like aggressive and mean to me. I'm just like, you're great. Just please take care of me. I'm like, give me some of that fight, please.
1: (laughs) You know, I totally understand where you're coming from because I get it. I get it. Yeah. Sometimes we need to be able to verbally say what we want to say. And then sometimes it's also like, maybe I do need to just like calm down yeah, and like totally. freeze in this moment because I need to learn how to think and First. practice the power of pause yeah. before reacting. And I yeah. didn't know how to do that. I yeah. just reacted, mm. you know? Um, so for me, softening my boundaries looks like Having clear communication, yeah. being very direct about what I was saying no to, what I was when I was willing to end a conversation. And I'm used, I'm still using this family member as an example. Sure. Because this was a family member that would talk in circles. No, well, why not? This, that, this, that. And I realized you need to minimize your explaining of right you need to you need to know when it's time to walk away from a conversation mm-hmm. do you want to explain is it a courtesy for you to explain go ahead and do that but if there's more pushback this is where you stop yep and this is where you make it clear to the person I've said what I said I'm not engaging anymore yeah that was how I learned to soften my boundaries versus I told you, blah, 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 and me becoming the aggressor. And now we're both angry and it's like, where do you go from here?
0: Yeah,
1: Right? And so that's an example of what it looked like to soften my boundaries. Mm -hmm. Another example was to be, this is hard for some people, but I had to get to a place where I admitted to the person who would sometimes request to hang out with me. And I would have to say, I don't think that's a good idea. Wow. I had to just let them know, like I am not in a space where I feel ready to do that. Mm-hmm. So I found myself really having to just be mindful of what makes me feel safe. Yeah. What makes me feel like if I do this thing, what are the limits to it? Yeah. And those are the ways that I had to assess how to mm-hmm. soften my boundary. And then most importantly, I, I had to say to myself, would you want to be talked to that way? Because I knew my tone and I knew my language was not appropriate, you know, yeah. just being fully transparent, she talking sure. to me, like I had to assess that as well. And that's made, that made me realize your boundaries are strong, but they are rigid. They are walls yes. Yes. and there is no space to tackle the grayness of this relationship. And that grayness is the black and whitest harm was caused. So that's clear cut. Yeah. The grayness is there's other things happening in this relationship that are meaningful, meaningful to you. Yeah. And this is the part where the children came in. Mm -hmm. You want that relationship with the children. So are you willing to step away Mm -hmm. and just recognize you may not be able to get that? For me, it was a no. Yeah. I wasn't willing to do that. So I knew that I needed to one also, because even though my, my reaction was to be there in fight mode, I also had to pay attention to moments where am I people pleasing? Mm-hmm. Right. Because I also, as I started to heal, there were times where I would get so tired of the arguing that I found having moments where I would just give in, Yep. certain things because I'm like, this is exhausting. Mm-hmm. I have to repeat myself. I have to do this. And then by giving in and people pleasing, I got exhausted from that too. So it's, it's a, it's trial and error. Yeah, I always tell people, you know, boundary work is, 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 a, is lifetime work. Mm-hmm. You know, it's something that we, we figure out daily because mm-hmm. our relationships can ebb and flow. Our needs and our desires can ebb and flow. And so you might find yourself constantly negotiating because things that you may have firmly said no to, two years ago, you might be open to it now. And the things you used to be open to, it might just be a firm no right now, Mm -hmm. you know? And so I do believe that every single day, I'm always assessing what are my boundaries for today? What do I need to thrive today? Because it might look different from how I thrived yesterday. And how I showed up in those relationships and how certain people interacted with me, today is a new day and my capacity is different. Yes. My nervous system may not be as dysregulated as it was the night before. Or today, maybe with certain things I've experienced, I am so dysregulated, I can't show up this way. Yeah. I can't tolerate this today. Um, And so for me, I've always learned to dance with my boundaries on a daily basis to assess what's right for me in this moment, Mm. you know, and because of those boundaries, I'm very happy and proud to say that, like, I've come a long way with this person. I have come a long way. The Mm. hate that was in my heart is no longer there. Wow. It is no longer there. And I think for me, a big part of that was developing my boundaries, being firm in my boundaries, but also not Taking their ignorance personal, not taking their harm personal, Mm -hmm. recognizing that I can respond to your behavior with my boundary. Yeah. But your behavior is not a reflection of me. Mm -hmm. Because that was another thing that I used to do. I used to feel like this was personal. Yeah. And Because of some of the things that person would say to me that it it felt like it could be personal. But I realized at the core, though, there's some self-esteem issues Mm. at the core. There's some trauma that they're that they have not healed from. Sure. And this is what it looks like when we don't heal our trauma and how it trickles down to community. And how hmm. it trickles down to by you not healing, you don't even realize the harm you're causing me. You yeah. want to be in relationship with me so badly, you don't even you don't even have the self awareness to see yes. the harm you consistently cause. Yes. And I can't repair that for you. I can't. And so I am very grateful that even though that person still has work they need to do, I am at peace.
0: Wow. I am
1: at peace being in close proximity with them Mm -hmm. I am I have a relationship with the children I am at peace because I just learned how to stay firm and I learned anytime I realized I did something that I was like oh man like this doesn't feel comfortable I didn't beat myself up for it Mm -hmm. I just said you know what new boundary yep boundary alert this didn't make you feel good so now you know moving forward this is not okay and that's that's a part of it too learning to be gentle with yourself through this process
0: I think that's such a good, beautiful point because, um, you know, there's a lot of Insta therapy out there right now and, and it, it makes it seem like it's cut and dry. And I don't think any, any person is trying to sound like it's cut and dry, but like, there's only so much you can get from like social media. Right. And so it makes it seem like it's pretty cut and dry. And I, I do think that there's there, the nuance of it is not able to be communicated in an Instagram post. The nuance of it is not really able to be uh, communicated in a 90 second video, but there is a lot of nuance to who we allow in our lives, who we um, have the capacity for, who we're able to feel safe enough with to communicate boundaries or who is like causing repeated harm. Who's just like, not, not getting it and not wanting to get it. And I think that the nuance of that, all you just, you beautifully painted a picture for that. So I'm, I'm really grateful to you for that because something that you said at the very beginning of this um, conversation on boundaries was you were considering what was at stake. Mm -hmm. When you're, when you're considering boundaries, what you want things to look like, you have to consider what's at stake. What are you giving up? There's always, there's always like a counterpart to your no, right? And there's always, there's an impact of your no, and that's okay. That's, that's just like reality, but considering what's at stake, what's at stake. If I do say no, what's at stake. If I don't say no, what's at stake for me? What's it stake for the other person? I think that's a really interesting conversation.
1: Yeah. And I think it's a big part yeah. of the complexity of boundaries. You yeah. know? Like, even outside of that, I, I think of people who are in abusive relationships. I think of people who live with mm-hmm. abusive household members. I think of people who um, are financially insecure. Yeah. I think of people who, even in my situation, you, you have kids that you love. They are kids. Yeah. Yeah, children. Yeah, involved that really, like I said earlier, should not deal with the consequence of their parents.
0: Yeah,
1: of their parents' harm that beautiful. And so there's always something at stake, and you have to ask yourself, if something is at stake, what am I willing to be flexible with, and what do I need to stay firm with? Because it Mm -hmm. all goes back to safety, and it Mm -hmm. all goes back to regulation. And so, is there a way that I can maneuver? in this situation and are there things that I might have to do to help me get out of whatever the particular situation is or are there mental things that I might have to do such as like and that's why I shared for me a big mental shift was let me stop taking this personally let me really do the work of stop believing that this person is acting this way because of me it's because of them yeah you know some of the things they went through. you know a lot of information that it's showing in how they behave, and it's not about you and i I tell you the peace that comes when you stop taking things personally <laughs> whew, man, I live such a peaceful life now. Wow, but like <laughs> how does
0: someone just do that? like how do you like it's a I feel like what often happens is we we almost gaslight ourselves where we're like, they don't mean it, they don't mean it, but our body doesn't believe us. How do we really sit in like a full body? This is not about me. Mm.
1: I love how you just framed it because you framed it in a way that feels meditative. Mm. And that is what I had to do. Wow, I really had to learn how to meditate and stay present because often when we are dysregulated and we're in a state of fear, we're no longer present in our body. Mm -hmm. Our thought took us somewhere. Yeah. It took us to this place that's imagined, or it took us to our past, to an experience that has happened before. Yeah. So the body is so dysregulated. It is not here in the present. And that is one of the things, that's one of the things that I had to learn how to do, to recognize when I am so dysregulated, what can I do to stay present? Grounding is so so vital for me. Um, and it's a method I always teach because it has been so therapeutic. Mm-hmm. And I find that it plays a big role in radical acceptance when we take ourselves from our away from our thoughts. We take ourselves away from the future. We take ourselves away from the past. And we sit here and I say, I'm sitting at my desk. I'm talking to Kristen. I hear the birds chirping outside. I have a glass of water next to me. I hear my dog barking. I realize I'm safe. Hmm. I am safe. This physical domain and atmosphere I'm in right now I am safe. Mm -hmm. I am not where my mind took me. I am not where my past is. I may have created scenarios in my head. And when I open my eyes and I take in what's around me, I realize I am not anywhere my brain and my mind just took me. Yeah. That fear I'm feeling in my body, there is no fear in this atmosphere. There is no fear in my home, in my house. This space is so sacred. I have nothing to be afraid of. And I learned to ground myself as a way to cope because the mind does that trick on you because it's survival. The mind says, remember when it happened with that last person, it's probably gonna happen again with this person. And I have to say, nope, I am right here. I'm going to take a sip of water. Maybe I need to move my body. So maybe that's how I ground myself to regulate my emotions. Mm-hmm. Another way that I like to um ground myself is to engage in um, being more conscious with my tasks. So I might, um, for example, I'm really big on being, having conscious breakfasts. What that means is, or eating, right? Just conscious eating. And what, that's not about the foods that I eat. It's about the practice. Mm-hmm. Do I need my phone while I'm eating dinner? Absolutely not. Mm. the phone away do i need to be sitting at my desk on the computer while i'm eating my waffles no you do not give yourself the five to ten minutes to sit in that Mm -hmm. before you immerse yourself in a world that's going to be demanding something from you wow sit with yourself for a second and by doing that as a meditative practice what that has helped me when it comes to my interactions with people is I have been able to reframe and say, when this person is acting this way, how can I regulate myself? How can I ground myself by being present and recognizing the safety that exists around me? How can I create that sense of safety that exists around me? Sometimes we'll be on the phone and get so dysregulated that when we hang up, our hearts racing. We're so impacted by that interaction that we start to have this feeling of fear and grounding helps us to realize I'm not on the phone anymore.
0: Yeah.
1: I'm here in this sacred safe space. Hmm. And that has been a big, big role in helping me learn to not take things personally. And I think the other mental shift around that was being able to say, has my behavior impacted a person where I have caused them harm? Let me investigate. Let me investigate what I may have done that could have hurt someone. And when I realize that I can't really come up with a rational answer, and I am doing the work of trying to repair, I can't control other people. And I've learned that radical acceptance plays a big role in being able to say, you know what? This is where they are. This is how they feel. Let me take a step back and trust that they will make it to the other side. And uh, I've been able to shift my mindset because now I'm realizing that everything that happens is not always about me. And I think I think that's ego work to be honest.
0: Yeah. <laughs> that's ego work. That's because deep. we we put ourselves At the the center.
1: At the center. Yeah. Yeah. We often don't realize when we're putting ourselves at the center of someone else's pain that that pain isn't about you, they're acting out. So it feels as if you are the source of their pain. Mm. Right. But often you're not. Yeah. Often it's a bigger picture. And for me, I've always learned to investigate and say, Am I the person who is the source of your pain? Right. But I can't control if you're not willing to have a conversation, right? I can't control how you react to that. So I still have to learn when it's appropriate for me to take a step back, ground myself in the present and just trust that when they're ready to heal, when they're ready to repair, when they're ready to do what they need to do to progress in life and to progress in this relationship, they will be here.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And that those are just the things that I feel like has helped me get to where I am. Now, this has been a journey. I didn't wake up and master, you know, all of this. <laughs> right. And I want to offer that because I do think people struggle with how do I stop taking things so personally, yeah. but it's a, again, everything is a case by case basis, you know, and I think a big part of it is really just getting out of your mind, shifting that mental mentality and really learning to ground yourself in the present um, so that you can feel what's happening around you and not allow your nervous system dysregulation to take you to a past experience or create a false experience based off because we just use our history as a learning map. Yeah. yeah. You know, so if that's my history, I'm going to create this false idea that this is probably the outcome. And what does it look like for me to just detach myself from the outcome and rest in what's happening in the present?
0: Wow, that was big. That was so big. The part about trusting that the other person is going to make it to the other side. That really impacted me. That was that was really impactful for me to allow a grown-up to be a grown-up, to give them their agency and their autonomy and to just trust that they, you know, do any repair work that I need to do and then trust that the other person is going to take the time and energy and however long it takes like they I'm going to let them have their experience and make it to the other side, but it doesn't have to be about me all the time.
1: Exactly. Exactly. And that's how I manage even setting boundaries when people say, oh, how the other person is going to react. Mm -hmm. And I think what has helped me develop more peace around setting boundaries is that I trust that you can deal with this dysregulation Mm because I can. I just use myself as a framework. I tell myself I've been in the darkest places. And I'm running out of it, right? And so why won't I trust that they don't have the skills to do that too? I'm gonna have mm-hmm. hope for them the way I have hope for me. And I've been able to reframe it that way where I know that you can get to the other side of this discomfort. Mm-hmm. I know you can. Mm-hmm. And that empowers me. That empowers me to be bold with my boundaries because I see it as an act of love. Mm-hmm. And I'm giving people an opportunity to develop a new skill. I've had to develop it. Yeah. You know, and we all this this is a part of life, yeah, so for me, it's like, what is the opportunity that I can take to shape someone? Yeah, and I see it as an act of hope. I see it as an act of generosity. I don't I'm really big on telling people to stop calling boundaries mean. It's not mean to have a boundary. You're being generous. yeah, when you tell someone no, when you speak up and share your limits, You are giving someone the opportunity to manage whatever discomfort comes up for you then, but you're also being honest in your relationships. Mm -hmm. I believe a lack of boundaries is a societal issue. It is not just a childhood upbringing issue.
0: If you are loving this podcast, would you take a moment and share it with a friend There are so many people in the world who need to know that they are not the problem. And I know that there are a lot of people in your life who would benefit from hearing these conversations with therapists and coaches about how to establish a healthy sense of self and create better relationships. So take a moment and share this episode with someone that you respect. It'll be like a beautiful free gift from you to them. And if you'd like to share it to your socials, make sure to tag me at I Have ADHD podcast and maybe even today's guest so that we can both say thank you to you and give you a virtual hug. All right, back to the show. Okay, I'm so excited that you brought this up because that's where I wanted to go next. So would you please, I know I'm interrupting you, I apologize, but I'm so Glad that you said that a lack of boundaries is a societal issue. Before you start, I want to read a quote from you, from your social. Um, We live in a country that traumatizes us daily. That's something that you say. It's time to shift the narrative from blaming individuals to addressing the root cause of mental health issues, working toward building a more equitable and supportive society, a supportive society. Talk to me a little bit about your perspective on this because I think it's unique and I think it needs to be heard.
1: Okay, I can do that for cool. you. <laughs> I'm so excited. <laughs> so, when I say boundaries is a societal issue, I think of American history. Mm-hmm. We as a country have not had boundaries. And as a country, when you have laws in place that oppress women, mm-hmm. you have laws in place that tell women they're not allowed to have a bank account, you have laws in place, let's go even further than that, where you can enslave people, Yeah, that shows me you have no respect for human rights. Yeah, You have already created a system that people have to fall in line into generational trauma is when those traumatic experiences begin to trickle down within our bloodline? Mm-hmm. It trickles down into every error every we have experienced. Yeah. So when you think of boundaries, you have to look, ex- look as, as, as I said, you have to examine American history, yeah. which is why a lot of our parents did not teach us boundaries. They didn't get to have any. Yeah, you. We're not allowed to work. Grandma wasn't allowed to work. What do you mean? Yeah. What do you mean get up and go to work or open up a bank account or do something other than cooking and cleaning? Yeah. There was no autonomy. Yeah. How was I supposed to teach you how to be yeah. a, a kid who had agency when my mother didn't have it? So yeah. therefore she didn't teach it to me. Even when I leave the home, we can go anywhere in the world and we can see, or at least in the US, I would say, and we can see that there are boundary boundary issues all over the place. A great example of that is after the coronavirus pandemic hit, they started putting um, stickers on the floor to measure social distancing. Yeah. When places started to pull those stickers up, I started to think to myself, man, we have no sense of physical space. People are breathing down your back when you are standing in a line. It is common culture to not even realize, I don't need to stand this next to a per- this close to a person. Right, like personal space. Personal space is not even uh, appropriate. Yeah. When we go to school, when we engage with the law, when we engage mm. in professions, there are rules. Rules have already always existed. So the reason why I say that boundaries is, is a societal issue is because when we look at history and when we look at the systems that we are forced to interact with, One, we are being raised by people who may have not had boundaries or learned to have boundaries Mm -hmm. because of the systems that they were forced to interact with, the system of patriarchy, the system of racism, Mm -hmm. the system of discrimination, the system of work and structural inequities. Those things shape how we show up in the world. We're not going to pretend that those things do not impact the way we maneuver in certain spaces, if we are trying to gain economic prosperity and upward mobility, if we are trying to grow in many areas of our lives, there are a places where we do not have autonomy, and it is stripped from us. Once our, your autonomy is stripped from you, how are you going to have the ability to advocate? Boundaries, in itself, is a form of self-advocacy. That is what yeah. a boundary is. Yeah. So, when you yep. are not given the opportunity to self advocate because you live in a country that traumatizes you daily, because we don't want to erect gun laws, <laughs> because we allow racism to be so prevalent because it is a system, it is not just an individual's issue, it is a systemic issue. Yeah. When structural inequities happen, this is a part of limits. This is a part of rules. These things take away agency and autonomy. So why would it, Why? Well, of course it's going to be hard that even when I'm trying to have a conversation with someone, I don't even know what it feels like to be firm and advocate for myself because society, on a societal level, we're not taught to do that.
0: Hmm.
1: We're not taught to do that. I am fully convinced, especially in the work that I do that because boundaries is a societal issue, it is also why we struggle with hearing the truth. It is also why we have used denial as a way to cope. Mm. A lot of us do not like the truth, mm. which is also why boundaries are hard. Mm. I often say with the truth part, going back to our ego, right? I believe that there is a big difference between entitlement and expectations. Often we are in the driver's seat of entitlement because that is the ego at play. Yeah. Entitlements, I like to shape them as demands where expectations are desires. Mm-hmm. These are the standards that I have. When I'm in a relationship with you, I desire that you speak to me this particular way. I can't be in a relationship with someone who screams at right. me when something goes wrong. Right. Entitlement says you do what I say, you act how I say, There are there is no talk back. Yeah. There's no such thing as you can't do this for me. There's no such thing as I'm not okay. And you can't drop everything that you're doing to to tend to me. There is no such thing as you having autonomy when I'm hurt, when I'm feeling X, Y, Z, you do, you drop it all and you do for me. And that kind of goes back to this system of individualism Mm -hmm. in our country, which is Mm -hmm. why we don't know how to have a boundary. We don't know how to engage with the boundary because we've been taught everything is about us. And that's one side of it. And we have been taught that we have no rights because we don't.
0: I know, it's so counterintuitive. Everything's about you, but also you have no rights. Exactly. That's, That's a battle. Wow. Right. So
1: I believe that a lot of what we do is shaped by what's happening, again, not just in our childhood. Because when we talk about trauma, yeah, we tend to focus specifically on childhood development.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: A big part of my work in community care is talking about systems mm. and talking about community violence. Mm. I grew up in a home where when you heard gunshots, you don't call the cops. Mm. Because whoever's shooting will come for you. That's hood politics.
0: Whoa.
1: Right? And the reason why I'm sharing that as a story is because we don't talk about how traumatic that is. No.
0: no. As
1: in the wellness world, we hyper focus on childhood development that we forget our society shapes children. Wow.
0: Yes, yeah, society shapes the parent, the exactly, grandparent, the parent. I mean, exactly, it's exactly because it is we don't system. exist in that in a vacuum exactly. of like and now I'm born and now things start influencing me.
1: Exactly. My parent raises me based off the system yep. that they have been able to, that they have had to interact with right. or the systems that they have had the privilege of being able to interact yep. with. Yeah. And when we forget systems, we've kind of fail ourselves
0: mm. because again,
1: it goes back to believing it's me, it's me. And it's funny because then it goes back to individualism, self-blame.
0: putting yourself
1: at the center of why you're hurting instead of seeing the bigger picture here. And it's like, no, this is a larger system at play. Mm -hmm. And this is a big part of boundary work that I, you know, I just believe that often that is missing from the conversation. Yeah. Um, I believe everywhere you go outside of your home, you probably have had an encounter with someone who had a poor, who had a poor boundary. That person who cuts you off knowing they could not squeeze in front of you. Right. That person breathing down your neck. That person who maybe asks you something inappropriate. There are poor boundaries everywhere we go. So there's no way you can say that that is just a result of, oh, well, maybe all of us just have really terrible parents. (laughs)
0: Mm, No, Right. (laughs) we're all
1: interacting with systems. We're all interacting with certain systems that causes us to become more individualistic Mm. versus community oriented.
0: Mm. And
1: boundaries is is an act of community care. And until we learn to become more community oriented, we are going to continue to be a fragmented country.
0: I just want to highlight what you said just there, because I, I think I, I would love to ask you to expound on it. Boundaries are an aspect of community care, because what's so interesting, it's like, it's a circle and I, I'm starting to piece it together. I really appreciate you sharing this. It's like um, a boundary is an acknowledgement of my own agency, my own autonomy. And when I respect someone else's boundary, I'm acknowledging that they have agency and they have autonomy. That's actually so much better for the community at large. And it promotes community, actually not individualism. You would think it would promote individualism, right? Because it's like, I have agency But it's also saying you have agency. So it has to be both. I can't set boundaries for myself and not receive boundaries from other people. It's a both and, right? I can't say, well, I have agency. I have autonomy. I get to define my capacity and not also acknowledge that in my my employee, in my child, in my friend, in my parent. Being able to acknowledge my capacity, me understanding my capacity means that I am open to someone else's version of their capacity as well.
1: Yes. And that is what community care is. It's reciprocity. That is how connections thrive. When both of us are pouring into each other Mm
0: -hmm.
1: versus me giving and giving and you taking and taking, and now my cup is empty and no one is nourishing me. And I need to be nourished in order to be full, in order to be whole, in order to have a quality of life, in order to sustain my well-being. I have to be full. But mm-hmm. how do I get full? I get full through nourishment, nourishing myself and others nourishing me as well. You know, and so I think when we practice boundaries and we see it as a form of community care, we recognize that this is what it looks like to build trust, care, and respect when we are amongst other people Mm. it's about hearing the needs of others because you care about them enough to know how do i show up for you the same way i want you to show up for me it's not just about what i want yeah right and that's why i always say boundaries is a two-way street when you're practicing erecting a boundary you always need to be practicing being receptive to someone's Right? And when we do that, we learn to function as a community, right? Mm-hmm. Because I think when i when I think of community as well, we all have different roles in our community, and because of the different roles that we have, each person is playing a part in building a greater society. Mm-hmm. And when we have boundaries, right, I can recognize, well, Kristen isn't the resource for this because this is where her limitation is. But mm-hmm. if I go over here, this is someone that I can interact with, right? Yeah. So I have a social of support. I have a circle of support. I have social capital, which is my yes. networks of relationships so that when Crystal can't play a role in building this thing, yeah. I talk to this other person who plays a role in building this thing. And you see at the end, we're still coming together. We're still building brick by brick. It's just that this time, Kristen isn't putting the brick up. Someone else is.
0: Yes.
1: Because Kristen has a limit here. She's yep. tapped out. And so we're going to call someone else in. And mm-hmm. this is why for me too, when I think of boundaries and I just think of connection and care, I'm really big on teaching people to be- develop their social capital mm-hmm. because we need people, not just a person. And a lot of us depend on one person for everything. Yeah. Not often this is why we take things personally because I only have one person in my yes. network. So when they erect a boundary with me, entitlement comes up because it's like, how dare you not respond to my demand?
0: Yeah. It's almost like from a desperation of like, where where else am I going to get this?
1: Exactly. Right? Exactly. Because there's scarcity there. Yeah. you have no one else.
0: Oh, that's good. You
1: have no one else. So when you become fully dependent on one person to meet all of your needs, there's a level of urgency that you start to experience when you are in a crisis or when you are Struggling with something, and often we make our urgency, we want our urgency to be someone else's urgency, right? Mm-hmm. Like, solve so, this for me, right, solve, solve this for me. And when we are dysregulated, yeah. we become very egocentric yeah. by nature because the body is trying to find a way to self protect. The body is searching for some sort of coping mechanism to help you regulate. So we're so self-focused in that moment because Mm -hmm. we're focused on our survival. But one of the things we have to remember, again, is that we are wired for connection with multiple people. And when we have multiple people in our networks, when Kristen isn't available, when that other person isn't available, right, I can reach out to different members of my community. This is why I always say self-care is the bridge to community care and community care is the bridge to community healing. Mm Self-care is that healing part. that self-healing part. We all are called to heal ourselves through therapy or different modalities to ensure mm-hmm. we're working through our trauma. But when I'm healing myself, I am, a, that is a gift to you because now I learn how to be in relationship with you. Oh, and I, I just I got can chills. <laughs> it's a gift. It it's is a, a
0: gift. It is a, a gift.
1: beautiful gift that mm-hmm. allows me to show up in, a, in this relationship with peace and vulnerability versus fear and dysregulation. Mm. And when I can engage with you with that gift, that allows us to continue to stay connected. Yeah. So those are the things that I just really, really encourage people to be thinking about when it comes to your boundaries. One, remember it is an act of community care. Mm-hmm. So see boundaries as a two-way street, but also remember community requires social capital. It requires a network, not just one person. So let's not burn out our friendships and relationships by trying to make one person Everything to us because we're wired to be amongst people. We are not wired to be extremely segregated from others or isolated from others. We are wired to be in connection because that is what helps us thrive as individuals, but that is what helps society thrive. We are the people who push culture. And so when we can collectively come together and agree on something, we are also changing our future.
0: Mm. I wish we could talk all day long the wisdom that you bring it's like a deep deep well I'm just so grateful that you're willing to share um before we go tell us about your book tell us where we can find it tell us where we can pre-order it tell us the things
1: Well, my book is available for pre-order everywhere. So you can go on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, uh, bookshop.org. It's also available in the UK in case anyone from the UK is listening. Um, Um, As I showed you here, owning our struggles. I'll just grab it.
0: It is so pretty. I love the coloring. I love the cover. (laughs) I love the whole thing. What's the tagline?
1: So owning our struggles, a path to healing and finding community in a broken world. Mm. So literally everything I just shared with Kristen today is what I talk about in my book talking about family relationships, talking about race in our country and how Mm -hmm. to find safe spaces, talking about our relationship to work and productivity and how Mm -hmm. that also leads to brokenness and just giving you the tools that you need to repair, build social connections and use collective care as a medium that helps you heal. Mm -hmm. So it's on sale, Right, it's on sale August 22nd, but right now it is in its pre-order phase Pre-orders are very important for an author. So please pre-order my book before August 22nd. And I'm super excited to talk more um, once the book comes out.
0: Oh, I love it so much. Everyone run, 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 run to Amazon right this second or wherever and pre-order. I will do it right now as well. I just appreciate you. I would love for you to come back on once your book is out. Thanks for your time, your vulnerability, your wisdom. It's just been a joy.
1: Thank you, Kristen. I would love to come back. And this has been such a wonderful conversation. So thank you.
0: Thanks. Thanks for listening to Maybe I'm Not the Problem, a bi-weekly series of the I Have ADHD podcast. For more information about today's guest, check out the episode show notes where you can find their bio, links, and all the fun things. Make sure to like, subscribe, and add this podcast to your feed, and then tune in every Tuesday for new episodes of the I Have ADHD podcast. And I'll be back here with you in two weeks for the next episode of Maybe I'm Not the Problem.